Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Caleb Jones. Welcome to the podcast, Caleb. Thanks. And I'll give you a little bit of background, our listeners, on Caleb and the focus of this podcast before we get into it. Caleb is calling in from Washington State. He lives 30 minutes north of Seattle in Lake Stevens. Caleb is an active member of the church, served a mission in Korea, um, has four children. Caleb's in his late 30s. He's the gospel doctrine teacher in his ward. Um, We'll talk about his career. I'll let him introduce his career to make sure I get that right. But we're going to talk about faith transition in this podcast. Both Caleb and I have gone through what some would call a faith transition. And for some Latter-day Saints, that leads them out of the church, but for others, it keeps us in the church. And we've done some podcasts of other people in this category. My brother, Dave Osler, Janice Spangler, Thomas McConkie, and I've noticed that the listens to those podcasts are some of our all-time highs, and I recognize that a lot of you listeners are working through the complicated issues of our church and need examples like Caleb, who knows all those complicated issues, wrestled with them and has found a way to stay and believe and serve and contribute. So I've known Caleb um, for over a year, maybe two years, and I've really appreciated his voice and his understanding of the doctrine of Christ. And he's been kind of one of a mentor to me in some ways as I've read a lot that he's written. So I've been anxious to have him on the podcast and we've put this together tonight. Is is that introduction okay, Caleb? I think that's that's more than generous. Um, I, 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 I have listened to a lot of those podcasts that you mentioned with, um, you know, Janet Spangler and Thomas McConkie and others, and, and they've been mentors for me as well. And, and you have in a lot of ways as well. So I think it, it, it kind of goes both ways. Thanks. I appreciate that. Tell us, um, just so I get your career right, share with our listeners what you do. It's kind of cool. Yeah. So I'm a, um, uh, she described it as a, uh, a large-scale uh, data architect for uh, Disney, and so been at that company for about eight years, and uh, focusing on how do we handle and manage and 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 plan for and design for the large amounts of of data that, that the company needs to use for various purposes. So, yeah, it's an exciting career, and working for a, a, a great company, I've been enjoying working for them. Do you travel a lot with your job, Caleb, or are you home in Washington State a lot? It, it comes in fits and starts. Um, so this month in September uh, has not been a good example. I've actually been away for half the month <laughs> on the East Coast for different reasons. Um, but uh, most of the time I'm I'm up in, in Seattle area. Um, so I have a, a large set of offices up here. So, And share with our listeners how long you've lived in your ward and... Um, and what your current calling is and just your relationship with Ward. I don't know how long you've lived there and how many different callings you've had. Yeah. So uh, my wife and I moved up, uh, we both grew up in the Seattle area. And so it was kind of moving back home uh, after going to BYU and Provo uh, myself. She went to our Institute of Seattle, um, but we were married my, my junior year and moved back here and um, lived with my parents for a brief period of time. And then, um, found an area, a home up here in the Lake Stevens area. So that was in 2006. Uh, yeah, 2006 when we 
moved up into Lake Stevens and been in the same home since then and uh, in, been in two different wards. So there was a, a split and a reorganization in the midst of that. So, yeah, we've been kind of set roots here for, I guess that would make That's it true. about 13 years or so in this same area. How long have you been the gospel doctrine teacher in your ward? Yeah, so I've been gospel doctrine since, um, I'll put it this way, I've been gospel doctrine teacher in award since Joshua. <laughs> so <laughs> that puts it, I guess, early 2018. Uh, and so I started teaching since kind of the early Old Testament and went through the end of the Old Testament. I've now had the opportunity with the new Come Follow Me curriculum uh, to do that with the uh, the New Testament. And I've loved your thoughts. We have an outline here for our listeners, and we're going to go through some of just insights about Christ and his mission. And um, it's very helpful and very insightful thoughts about Caleb's. It's one of his spiritual gifts. And it's it, this isn't quite like going to Caleb's Sunday school class, because this is a little less structured and a little, we may have more time, a little informal, but I kind of like to imagine everybody at Caleb's class. Um, he offered a prayer before we went live. And I just hope that our listeners will feel um, a wonderful spirit, um, great insights to Christ, his mission, how that mission applies to us and what we can do better. And and as Caleb may share at times a little bit about his faith transition, that is probably a, a scary word for some. That implies that what once was is no longer there. But I've learned that that's a word that's really fine. A lot of really faithful Latter-day Saints go through a faith transition, and it doesn't mean that they... Um, give up what they prior believed. It's just perhaps a different and um, I, I wouldn't even say more mature because those that haven't gone through a faith transition, I don't want to say they're less mature, but it's just something that some members of our church go through. And I've enjoyed Caleb's insights, and I would guess he will share a little bit about with that, that with us. And we will also probably get time to talk about in Caleb's stake um, and LGBTQFHE. So this podcast doesn't have much about LGBTQ, but um, Caleb will share a little bit about what their stake is doing um, with the support of their stake presidency. So let's start with um, just a question. Um, talk about the difference between Jesus, um, the one who lived in Galilee, and Christ, the Anointed One. Yeah, so I think... Many, many people will be familiar with this, but sometimes um, this can be new information or it can be information that helps people kind of understand uh, Jesus in, in new ways. But, um, you know, but Jesus Christ, Christ was not his last name. Um, we use it almost like that, but um, Christ is a title. And you mentioned it, you know, it comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew word meaning Messiah or anointed one or uh, I guess you could say someone who's dedicated or set apart for a purpose, right? And um, Jesus was his given name. Um, and I sometimes it's, I've told my kids this before, where if you were on the streets at the time of Jesus and you yelled out his given name, you might have a few heads turn back uh, and look at you. It was a common name at the time. Uh, and so that's why in the scriptures, he was often referred to as Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus son of Mary or Joseph's son, right? So to kind of designate who he was in a certain place. Um, and so the word Jesus, um, I mentioned it's a pretty common name, but it, it comes uh, from a variant or uh, eventually to the Hebrew word uh, Joshua, uh, and which means 
God saves or Yahweh saves. Uh, and so we have these two, uh, a name and a title which describes our, our Savior. Uh, you know, God saves and someone set apart or dedicated for a purpose. Uh, and so that's where, um, you know, Jesus and Christ, and we will talk a lot, you know, talk more probably about what is Christ and how can we understand that in our faith and our testimony and, and how sometimes then our testimony changes how we can come back to these things, um, you know, God who saves as well as uh, someone who's dedicated for a purpose and rethink that in, in a way that we can journey with us. I really like that. I've never really thought of yelling Jesus's name, Caleb, and <laughs> back in his day and the fact that multiple people would turn around. Um, talk about how Jesus defines his gospel in the scripture, a little bit about that. Yeah, so, and this has been something that, has been helpful for me. And one of the things I think it, it can be difficult, but I mean, it genuinely is difficult uh, when someone is re-examining their faith and really developing uh, sometimes for the first time that real personal um, connection to what they believe and why and how um, the idea of Jesus's gospel um, becomes an, an important thing. So, uh, you know, Jesus's gospel um I, I worry sometimes we we, we overuse that um, to mean anything we teach, right? <laughs> um, but one exercise that can be useful is to search. There's a few phrases in our scriptures where Jesus says, um, "This is my gospel." Uh, in those phrases, so if you actually do it, like you go to lds.org and, and and search, "This is my gospel." In quotes, um, you'll get back scriptures like. Uh, Doctrine and Covenants 33 or Doctrine and Covenants 39, and then also um, 3 Nephi 27. And when you look across those, the common thread is uh, very much what we've articulated in uh, our Articles of Faith, where it's faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost, uh, which is often called the baptism of fire. Uh, and so I, I think... But we we ought to pay attention to that um, as his his gospel those core principles first principles and ordinances because I think we see Christ paying careful attention to those basic principles and and again this is something that we reexamine faith in a particular point in time in our under in our you know our faith transition or faith journey might mean something different than a. a at one point than another point, and how we repent, uh, while repentance, you know, the basics of it of turning away from sin, uh, might mean different things at different points in time for us. Uh, and so, I see these as simple, uh, basic things. Um, in fact, I was reading um, Becky McIntosh's new book, uh, "Loving Boldly." Just got that this last weekend, and early on, she said this phrase which I just loved, uh, so I jotted it down. She says, the gospel is beautiful in its simplicity. And she talks about another component of this that we'll, we'll probably talk about. She says, love God, love one another, and love ourselves. And then she goes on and says, we are the ones who make things more complicated, <laughs> not God. So that, I think, in, in a nutshell, um, it kind of encapsulates what we have in our scripture when if we want to turn to scripture and ask well what, what does god say his gospel is that's what we have there in dr covenants and, and in third nephi as well gospel is a word i've never thought about 
uh, much. I've said the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've used that word as a generic word in lots of conversations. And I like that um, you're bringing that down um, through the search and through your understanding to these four basic words, faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost. And I have felt impressed in my faith journey to keep it pretty simple and bring it back often to those core foundational um, doctrines and principles. I would call those doctrine, faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, I would call, you know, versus principles. Um, that's really, is is any examples of how the word faith or any of those changed then? You've kind of inferred that those words are still important to you and foundational um, doctrinal principles, but any thoughts on any of those that have changed? Yeah. And so, for instance, uh, you take the first one there, uh, faith, right? And Sometimes we can think and 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 hopefully we can we can communicate that I, what I'm not trying to do is saying, hey, guess what? Things that you could do, you encounter, and and new ways that you think about this is necessarily better. I think uh, one thing I want to communicate is that the reason a reason why Jesus' gospel is so powerful is that it can work for people who are on various points in this journey or various levels and personalities even. Um, and so faith, for instance, um, one way someone might understand faith is as an assent to believing something, right? Um, and that might be the core of what they think faith is. Like I, I identify all these different articles. I need to assent to their veracity and then hold on to that tightly. Um, but faith uh, comes from a, a word that etymologically means that, uh, trust or fides is that, that, that word. And so when I think of faith, almost always when I'm reading my scriptures, um, I replace it mentally with the word trust. So what does it mean to have faith in Jesus Christ? It means that I trust him. Uh, what does it mean to have faith in um, a leader? It means that I trust or I want to work with them and it gets into sustaining and things like that. Um, and so that's what I think of, uh, you know, to have faith is to be trusting, to have hope. Um, and to me, that opens it up in, in ways that uh, can, can be more enduring to people, because I think we all want to find reasons to hope. Um, our reasons might change, but that principle of finding hope, I think, is, is enduring. Um, so that's one example with, with that, that first principle there. And I think we can do similar sorts of things um, with other principles, just come back to them and revisit uh, and and kind of, it's almost like gathering mana, right? Where it, it spoils, it can spoil sometimes after any particular yeah. singular way of thinking about it can spoil after time. And we have to be willing to go back and gather anew. And I think there's, there's fresh mana for us here in these core principles to go back to throughout our lives. I really like that, Caleb. I recognize these words may mean lots of different things to lots lots of different faithful Latter-day Saints. I love the idea of changing that word at times to trust. Faith to me is sometimes harder to control. I don't, um, but trust almost is easier. It's almost easier to me see I trust or I have, and that that is almost a better spot for me. And the other thought that came to my mind is I heard an institute teacher once talk about faith, like you said, as a, an ascent to a certain um, level of beliefs, like our articles of faith. 
And then he made the point back in Jesus's day that if we had used that word, we might have even used it if we talked about Christ's ministry, we would have talked about how he treats others. We may not have given a doctrinal answer of faith in a statement of beliefs, but a statement of faith in how we treat others, because so many of his teachings were sort of challenging the, the, the assumptions of the day of how to treat others. So I love that faith can be kind of a fluid word and mean different things to us at different times, but it always seems to help us come into Christ and be a better person. Yeah. And I also think about, um, you know, there's, there's different quotes from Joseph Smith at different times where um, um, one of them where he says, you know, he says creeds, they set up these, these stakes and they say, you can come to this point and you can't go any further, right? They're, they're seeking to lock down. Um, and to me that, that can be one way in which faith may, uh, an understanding of faith may not be as productive for someone. If it's, closing you down to what you're feeling God's communicating, then again, go back and gather that fresh man and say, well, rather than faith, meaning a creedal sort of ascent, um, maybe it can be being open to trust. Uh, and, and so I think, uh, you know, Joseph Smith might have been, been sensitive to some of the dangers of, of seeing faith as just a, a, like a creedal doctrinal, uh, you know, reductive kind of understanding. What's one of your favorite things about Joseph Smith? One of my favorite things about Joseph Smith was he was, was willing to, it was, it was a creativity, I would say. Um, and he was able to get at these kernels of truths. Uh, for instance, one of the most beautiful passages, I think that he revealed is, is in Dr. Covenant section 121. And goes into this just beautiful understanding of of authority, and that that came out of um, you know uh, just his experiences and and his almost I almost let's say playfulness, right? His playfulness with trying understanding things in new ways and thinking about things from a new perspective, and and so for me, he he kind of exemplifies this. That's metaphor I've kind of uh, talked about of, of gathering up new manna. And I see the restoration as, as, as that kind of act, going back to and recovering and going back again and recovering and going back again and recovering. And so that's one of the things I appreciate and, and see a lot of in, in Joseph Smith. I'll talk a, about Elder Uchtdorf. You, um, in our notes before we prepared for this podcast, you talk about his talk the pattern, the path, and the promise. I'm sure with our listeners why that talk has some meaning, meaningful elements to you, Caleb. Yeah, so maybe back up a little bit, and we're, you know, we're talking about the gospel, faith, repentance, baptism, the Holy Ghost. Um, I think it's also important to understand how Jesus anchored those to his new commandment of love, um, where, you know, John, it's the, you know, this new commandment I give unto you, love one another uh, as I've loved you. And then um, in, in Matthew, we have similar, you know, wording, uh, love thy neighbor as thyself and on these two and love God. And on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophet. So we have these first principles and ordinances, uh, which our scriptures describe as my gospel, um, but also they're rooted in love. Um, and, 
we were just reading in our, our family recently, um, um, and I'm, I'm almost bitter. It's, it's bittersweet. So we have conference coming up, and that's great. But Galatians lands during that week on on a conference week, and there's so much wonderful uh, nuggets in there about early Christian understanding of the gospel. One of which is in Galatians five, where it says, um, "For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself." And so the fulfillment of the gospel really is is love. So I just want to set that backdrop a bit because that's, I think, where Elder Uchtdorf, and he gave this, I think it was a 2015 um, um, sermon he gave at the uh, the uh, Salt Lake uh, Gospel Mission. And, and uh, I'll just read it because I, I love how he puts this. Um, and he says, to put it simply, having charity and caring for one another is not simply a good idea. It is not simply one more item in a seemingly infinite list of things we ought to consider doing. It is at the core of the gospel, an indispensable, essential, foundational element. Without this transformational work of caring for our fellow men, the church is but a facade of the organization God intends for his people. Without charity and compassion, we are a mere shadow of who we are meant to be, both as individuals and as a church. Without charity and compassion, we are neglecting our heritage and endangering our promise as children of God. And he ends with this. He says, no matter the outward appearance of our righteousness, if we look the other way when others are suffering, we cannot be justified. And wow. I just love that quote because um, it, it really anchors the, the, the gospel, the church, the whole meaning of this to that principle of love and, and, and charity. I love that quote. And I think you were the first one online. We're in a long online fakes group together and you posted that. And I think that's the first time I've seen that quote. And um, will you tell, if our listeners want to find that, will you tell them how to find that? Yeah. So I usually end up going to uh, Google and just typing uh, Uchtdorf gospel mission. And um, it's one of the first ones up there. Uh, it's posted on the church news. Um, but I think probably the best way is, I don't know if it's easy for you to put a link in. Yeah, the, we could uh, put a link in the podcast to that. Yeah. Because uh, um, that's not a conference talk, our listeners. It was given to, I believe, the the service missionaries in Salt Lake City, part of the service mission. Is that right, Caleb? I believe so, yeah. If I remember correctly, it was in 2015. When Take us back to Christ's day. How, how yeah. revolutionary was this commandment to love one another? I mean, I sometimes see that through my 2019 eyes, but... Any context for what that was like during Christ's um, day and what he did personally to demonstrate that in his ministry? That Just thoughts on that. Yeah, so um, and this has come up in, in lessons that I've taught in, in uh, the Old Testament, um, but also at home we bring this up with our kids, that you can, you can almost paint this, 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 connect this line through human history of the idea of of um, justice, uh, where, and, and this is interesting because 
we often think of eye for an eye as, well, that's so barbaric, right? Um, again, through like our 2019 eyes. Um, but remember, before eye for an eye, it was, you know, you, you broke my fence, I kill your ox, right? You killed my ox and I, you know, raise your village. And it was this escalating <laughs> sort of retributional uh, idea of justice. So for its time, eye for an eye was actually a more just, it was a, a progression uh, away from that. Um, and then Jesus comes along and, and says, no, turn the other cheek. Right. Um, and so he, again, elevated the, the, the idea. And so that idea of loving your enemy, um, you know, could be very, very radical for that time. Um, not that the idea of, of loving your neighbor was new, right? That wasn't new. Um, that had been, you know, taught by different uh, rabbis and things. But the, the way that he talked, the way that Jesus talked about this in terms of a new covenant, new commandment, and bringing it all together in, for instance, his uh, Sermon on the Mount was, was quite new. And, and, and I think it was also challenging, especially, you know, his parables. He chose to make the, um, the marginalized, the protagonists in his, his parables, right? His, his, his choice to make the Samaritan the example exemplar in that parable, the Good Samaritan, that was, I, I believe, that was a, a deliberate, he was striking a nerve there. Um, you know, the Jews and the Samaritans had deep religious, uh, philosophical, even racial uh, tension uh, between each other in, in a long history there. And him choosing to to point out at the Samaritan or choosing to react to the way that he did to the woman caught in adultery, to me, exemplifies this kind of, of uh, message of love and, and how far we, we need to take that in our, in our societies to reach out to the marginalized and reach out to those who might be excluded. Yeah, you've got some great ways of describing that. Um, it just, uh, the more I read the New Testament, the more I think of what why are these parables here for today? And Christ seeing our day as he gave the Sermon on the Mount was obviously for the people of that day, but the principles he teaches in these parables and their application to me today and my responsibility as a Latter-day Saint to marginalized people is something I think a lot about. Um, just any thoughts on any parables in particular that apply apply to groups today that are tender for you or important to you yeah i think and while this isn't a uh, a parable um i love the 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 accounts that we have of um of his reaction to the, the woman taken in adultery and there where that was very much a, a scene where the ideas of, of, of right and wrong then, and even even today, while we don't respond to adultery in the same way of you know stoning, um, we we do look at it the same way in terms of that is not following uh, you know God's God, uh, plan and, and and gospel living and so forth. Um, but he chose in the midst of that to see the 
this woman as a, as a daughter of God to the people who are bringing her to be stoned. Um, she was a, she had been, she had been a representation of sin. Uh, and that was what they saw her with. They saw her as her sins. And Jesus looked past her sins and said, no, that is not her. She has this eternal worth beyond that. Um, there's a book called um, I and Thou that was written by a Jewish, Jewish philosopher named uh, uh, Martin Buber. And he describes these different kinds of relationships, two of which he describes an I-it relationship and an I-thou relationship. And in an I-it relationship, is, it's a very instrumentalist kind of relationship where someone's just fulfilling a function for us. It, it might be, for instance, the relationship you have with a, uh, a teller, uh, you know, someone running a cash register at a restaurant, right? Um, but we need those, right? In large, complex societies, we need that kind of relationship. But an I-thou relationship is this deep, intersubjective relationship where we see each other as we are. Um, and a problem can occur when all we see our relationships or the way we see others is this instrumentalist kind of I it. And we have to get past that and really see each other for who we really are and, and be able to see past these, these uh, instrumentalists. And so I think when we, when we look at sin, we have to be able to get past that in one another. Otherwise, we're never going to be able to get to that deep intersubjective uh, connection with each other. And so I, when I look at Christ, I see a lot of his parables, uh, the, the way that he treated people. Uh, you know, he was eating with the then considered unclean. Um, he was healing those who were also unclean. And, uh, you know, he went into, um, you know, the tomb to to resurrect um, um, uh, I'm thinking, drawing a blank, um, Lazarus, Lazarus, right? And and that was an unclean act. You didn't go in there. And and so I think a lot when I think a lot about Jesus' teachings is he's getting us, he's pointing us at the way, and the way is to not marginalize one another, not see each other as unclean, not see each other as one another's sins, and be able to see what's beyond that. Um so that's that's kind of how I, you know, what what really inspires me. Uh, at a very high level across uh, a lot of Christ's uh, teachings. I like that. And I think of um, even to see ourselves that way, sometimes it's um, we're hardest on ourselves and we don't believe because of our own aware, because of our awareness of our own sins that we're actually worthy of God's love. And um, I think that's one of the greatest tools of Satan is to, cause us to believe we're not worthy of God's love or we're outside of God's love or the shame we may feel because of our own weaknesses. And I love what you're teaching there and the way it also applies to each of us individually as we try to yeah, move I, forward. Yeah, I think that, that we talk about the two great commandments, but I, I sometimes raise my hand and say, well, there's actually three there, right? There's love God, love your neighbor, but how mm -hmm. do we love our neighbor? As ourself. And as you point out, sometimes that self-love, not in a prideful way, but that self-acceptance, that, that self-confidence, that, that love, genuine love, charity towards ourselves is important. We've, I remember we had, a, we had a conversation with our kids in one of our Come Follow Me lessons where we, we talked about first, what does it mean to love 
another person. And we listed these attributes, well, be patient with them, be forgiving, trust them, um, you know, support them, listen carefully to them, um, you know, be their cheerleader, things like that. We kind of listed these attributes. And then we said, okay, well, if we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, how can we do each one of those things? Can we trust ourselves? Can we have confidence in ourselves? Can we be patient with ourselves and can we be our own cheerleader and, and those sorts of things. And, and I think it's a very cyclical sort of thing where, um, you know, sadly when I, when I've seen hate um, in this world, I often wonder how, what, how the person who's in a, you know, acting in a very hateful way, how do they think about themselves? Um, are they treating themselves that way? Because I think our capacity to love others can come from our, our capacity to love ourselves and vice versa. And I, I think we can start with one or the other. But as we learn to love others, I think we can also learn to love ourselves. And as we learn to love ourselves, we can also learn how to love others. Um, so I just love how that's all tied up in that, those, those great commandments. I really like that. I was talking to a gentleman we may have him on podcast to real serious pornography problem, and he talked about his ability to, for the first time, make progress on that. And he had a deeply spiritual experience where he felt God's love for him, even with this challenge. And it was the key turning point to him to be able to make progress as he fundamentally saw himself as somebody that's worthy of God's love. And that was so transforming to him, even with this difficult challenge in his life. Um, and I just love the power of what you're teaching and the importance, I think we're rightly so, we talk about worthiness and commandment keeping and um, the covenant path, and I support all that. But if, as we make our way forward, we're going to make mistakes, and that's just part of mortality. And I think perhaps one of the greatest challenges is how we handle our mistakes, and if we can love ourselves and still see us worthy of God's love and um, see that the goal here is maybe not if we make mistakes or not, but how we handle them, if we're able to move forward and learn from them and grow. Yeah. And I love what I you're think, teaching here to do that. Yeah. I think, I think the mistakes, I think it's fair to say the mistakes are part of the plan. They're not the goal, right? but the, <laughs> well the said. <laughs> and there's time for us to pass through those mistakes and learn from them. That's part of the plan. Right. And so we don't go around seeking to sin. Right? That's, that's Paul in, in Romans, you know, do, okay, we have this grace. So does that mean that sin is, is glorifying? No, that's not the case, but, um, but we can not treat it as a, you know, I, I failed to brush my teeth one day. So that's the end of brushing my teeth. Right. Uh, it's, I can come back. Um, and in, in one moment, when I was teaching in the old Testament, we had a, a section where, uh, I can't remember where it was in scriptures, but we, it was talking about sin. And there's different ways, different words that the scriptures use to describe sin. One is missing the mark, like something an archer might do, right? They didn't hit the target. Well, what do you do when you miss a target? You you draw again and you try again, right? And you correct, okay, I was too far to the left, so let me go to the right here and so forth. And another one is to, to slip or, or fall or uh, when one ought to have stood. And, you know, I grew up in, and did Boy Scouts and, you know, did 50 miler hike and things like that. And, and when you slip and fall, what do you do? You brush yourself off and you get up again. And, and it's, and it's even easier to do so when you have 
people around you who can help get you back up, right? Who can lift you back up and are willing to, to lift you. And so I think that's an uh, important thing to think about with, with sin. I really like that. There's about six more bullet points on our list, and I we probably don't have time to get to all of them because I want to ask you some other questions. Are there ones on here, Caleb, that you particularly like to address with our listeners? Yeah, so I think that um, a good one might be that, you know, is our is our faith to be uh, backwards looking or is it to be forwards looking? And I don't want to paint a kind of false dichotomy here where it's, it must be one or the other. I think it, 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 there's important ways that our faith looks back towards, you know, we've been talking about Christ's example and so forth. And, but I think there's an important dimension is our faith needs to be forward looking. And I wanted to give just a couple examples of that. Um, and, and to me, this, this, there's a scripture in, in John um, where he talks about, he says, uh, John 14, uh, in verse 12. And I'm using the um, NRSV translation of this, uh, mainly because uh, it, the King James Version is wonderful. I like the King James Version. Um, it is very much set in a particular time in English language where it um, preferred to use male pronouns, even when the Greek didn't demand it. Um, and sometimes that can be um, unhelpful for us to understand scripture. So in this translation, it, it I think, uh, in my opinion, goes closer to what the, the Greek says and says, um, says very, very truly, I tell you, the one, so rather than, the man, it says, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the father. And that's really interesting because we almost uh, initially recoil from that verse and say, wait, we can't possibly do greater works than, than, than Jesus. But I think what he's trying to get at here is he's, is he's saying, look, I'm only here for a short period of time. There's only so much I can do while I'm here on the earth, right? And I'm giving you the charge to do these works, to continue this work. And for me, that takes faith and projects it powerfully forward. Where we say, well, what is Christ? Christ is in this world today through us. We are his hands. We are his, you know, his many hands working in this world. And I wanted to give... Um, Two quick examples. I'll try to make it quick. Of I love this, and I don't know. If, yeah, go ahead. This is great. Um, I want to give two examples, and I don't know if these people are Christian. I haven't looked them up, um, but to me, they are encapsulating um, what this could look like. Um, so I don't know if you've heard about uh, James Harrison. He was an Australian, nope. um, born. Uh, 1936, he underwent a major chest surgery um, at the age of 14. It required 13 liters of blood. And after undergoing that and, and recovering, he dedicated himself to donating blood throughout his life. He had to wait until he was 18 when he could do that. It was quickly discovered that his blood contained uh, unusually strong antibodies against the, I think it was the, the DRH group antigen. And regardless, um, what it's useful for is to prevent uh, hemolytic disease in newborn babies. And so he has, over the course of his year, 
um, which can that can lead to death and all sorts of uh, you know horrible organ failures and, and and brain damage and things like that. But over the course of his life, he has donated blood plasma over a thousand times. Wow! And it has prevented thousands of children from dying, and has helped save over 2.4 million babies wow. from this disease. So, going back to that scripture. And again, I don't say this to be sacrilegious or anything like that, right? Um, but when Jesus gets that charge, do the works that I have done, and you'll do even greater works. I go, well, did Jesus help save 2.4 million babies? No, he couldn't. He only was here, and he was in a particular time and place where that technology didn't exist. But Jesus did bless children, and Jesus did heal the woman with an issue of blood, and he did set the example. Right. And so when we talk about faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, we have faith. We look back and we and we, we look at the example of Jesus. But that faith needs to then turn around and project forward into our time. And um, so that's one example. Um, the second one, um, Ruth Burks, and I don't know if you've heard about her, um, but she was born in the U.S. in, in, in Arkansas uh, in 1959. And she was visiting a friend of hers in the hospital who was, uh, had cancer. It was 1984. And she noticed a room uh, in the area that was covered by a red bag. And she discovered that parent, that patient was diagnosed with what was then called GRID. It was called gay-related immune deficiency, which later became known as AIDS. And the nurses were too frightened to go in and, um, and administer to that, uh, that, that young man. And so she went in, uh, she had a, a relative who was gay, um, and she went and met with a patient, and this dying young man communicated to her to see uh, this desire to see his mother before he died. And unfortunately, as we knew uh, then and uh, you know during the AIDS scare, um, in this case, the young man's mother refused to even um, come. And uh, um, Ruth decided to stay with that young man during his final hours, um, and when the mother wouldn't claim the body, she took the young man um, and his body, found a funeral home that would take the body, and then buried this man in one of her family's cemetery plots. Um, to me, wow. that's a powerful example of what it means to reach out to the marginalized and minister. And she ended up doing this over and over, um, for caring sometimes as a primary palliative care for over a thousand AIDS patients wow. during the height of the AIDS scare. Um, and she did that also with the help of the local uh, gay community. But to me, that's just a beautiful example of, of what it means to be Christ-like. Now, again, I don't, I'm not saying something about the faith of these two individuals, but um, I think those are taking those can be seen as taking the example of Jesus Christ and projecting it into our world today. Um, so I see that as powerful examples there. Uh, and again, even greater is not sacrilegious. So Jesus, going back to the example, Jesus didn't minister to a thousand gay people, but he did minister in ways that are similar. And he gave the example and the pattern. And then he challenges us and says, now do this today in your way, in your world. Um, and that's just a, a powerful example to me. I love those examples, and I love the visual of, of pointing forward. And I see so many people in our faith serving in so many different ways. And I think 
as you would agree, I assume that all those are important and valued. And it is one of the things I love about our church is this desire to serve others and recognize that's part of our baptism covenant and commandment. And, and, and sometimes it's harder to serve the marginalized. I don't know how, I mean, I was 20 during the AIDS crisis, so I didn't, you know, I was just not, I probably wasn't in a position to go serve in a hospital. Maybe I could have, but I think that's one of the challenges is how to serve, how to minister to those that society sort of says you should separate yourself from, and everybody's got to kind of navigate that the best way they can. But certainly Christ set a great example. I love those stories. Do you know if Ruth is alive? What was that? Do you know if Ruth is alive? I, I, I don't remember if she is, um, I have to imagine the reunion on the other side if she's not. Um, yeah. And I sometimes imagine these reunions because of the type of service we do here. Other things you'd like to share with our listeners as part of your list, Caleb? Yeah. So and it's kind of to round out this idea of taking the works of, of, of Jesus and bring them powerfully as, as, Christ, as example of Christ in our world. One of the things I love about um, our, our restoration is we we have this, and this might be another thing we can talk about is um, it's, it's a word called Christologies, or meaning Christology just means how do you come to understand Jesus? Um, and there's a, there's often it's called a, a low Christology or a high Christology, where a low Christology might be something you have in in Mark, where it's very you know, John, I guess maybe contrast it with John. John starts off with this high Christology of the word was in the beginning was the word, the word was God. And it's a very uh, soaring sort of language of, you know, Christ preexisting, coming to earth and returning. Um, and a, a low Christology is this idea of, of Christ growing and progressing and God uh, almost adopting as his son and, 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 and exalting and resurrecting. And again, neither one is necessarily better than the other. There are two different ways, and we see this in early Christianity, uh, where Mark and the Synoptic Gospels tend to be more on the, the low Christianity side. John tends to be on the high. Paul tends to be on the high side as well in some of his epistles. But there's this, this verse, uh, this scripture I love in Dr. Covenant's 93, uh, and it's it's this vision of, of John's testimony of, of, of Jesus. It says, I, John, saw that he, meaning Jesus, received not of the fullness at first, but received grace for grace. He received not of the fullness at first, but continued grace for grace until he received a fullness. And thus he was called the Son of God, because he received not of the fullness at first. And then going on, it says, I give unto you these sayings that you may understand to know how to worship and know what you worship, that you may come to the Father in my name and in due time receive of his fullness. For if you keep my commandments, you shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore, I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. And so this is a powerful set of verses here. It's asking these questions. How are we to worship Jesus Christ? Right? And it, it comes back and probably says, by living as he did. And how do we do that? Well, not perfectly at first, but progressively. Grace for grace. There's this, you know, go out and try. You're not going to be perfect. But keep trying, and you can get better and better and better. And and it does, you know, Jesus doesn't come and say, "I've done it all for you. It's a done deal." He comes and says, "Come follow me." 
And when we do, our potential is the same as he has. And I think of um, in, in Romans, it, it talks about, you know, we are the children of God. That, you know, spirit bears witness with our spirit. We're children of God. And it says it's children and heirs and joint heirs with Christ. But it gives this qualification at the end, which I think is important. It says, if it so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So this gospel is to live the word, live the works and project the works of Jesus and Christ into this world today. And that's going to involve suffering with people. Um, and I think that can be part of the, what's scary is it's not a gospel of comfort. <laughs> um, and I, I had this experience with my son. Um, I was driving him to, he does this agility kind of a ninja warrior course. He, he has so much energy. It's so kinetic. It's a perfect thing for him, but he's also a really deeply feeling individual. He's only nine years old. Um, and we're driving and out of the blue. He says, Hey dad, I think, I think um, that uh, empathy is important. And I said, really? That's interesting. Why do you think empathy is important? And he says, well, it's important to feel with other people, to feel what they're feeling. I said, wow, that, yeah, that, that's really important. And, and then he kind of paused for a second. He says, yeah, but that hurts too. And my heart just kind of broke. And I said, wow, this is, how old is this soul that God sent us? <laughs> sent into our family. And, wow. and I kind of shared with them how, yeah, it, it does. Uh, being empathetic does hurt um, because you have to care. But I think that's what God does, right? And we have examples of Jesus weeping, of God, you know, Enoch learning that God weeps. And, and, and I think that is part of our call is to mourn with others and to care. And in order to do that, you, you have to care and we have to open ourselves up to be vulnerable. And I think the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that, and it can do that in powerful ways that I think transcend the kinds of things and and, and real angst that people feel during a faith transition. But I I continually come back to this example of Jesus Christ, and and it's it's there. It's there for us um, across this kind of this faith journey. I love the wording of your nine-year-old son um, gives me hope in the future of our church and the future of the world with young men like that. And I didn't know anything like this 10 years ago, Caleb. I wouldn't have had any sort of perspective to walk in this space of, of sort of empathy and feeding each other's pains. I remember Spencer Fluman, a professor at BYU being on the podcast a while ago, and he talked about God and he said, sometimes we think of this God that is without emotion um, because we think that's sort of the highest way to live, and um, it makes him weak, or vul- it makes him less godlike to to show emotion, or to weep, or to cry, or to or to feel our pain. And I I didn't ever thought of it that way. And it's just what you are um, teaching us and using scriptures to talk about God weeps. And I recognize that that's part of a manly man, so to speak, and a wonderful disciple of Christ is to be able to empathize and walk with people in their pain. Cause I think that's how we heal each other. And I love what, even though this is, you know, we're reciting scriptures and it's may sound kind of complicated. I think everything you're teaching us isn't very complicated. You're really just taking us back to the very, very basics of faith, repentance, baptism, and love. 
and how to do that. And that's what I love about, you know, your discipleship. Um, I want to, there's a couple things on this list. I want to make sure we get to, um, uh, you've written a line here, how doubt is part of the process of revelation and doubt is a word that if, if we did a bunch of research in the LDS church, a lot of faithful members are going to have a lot of opinions about doubt. <laughs> on, on one <laughs> yeah. end of the spectrum, it's something we should avoid. It's of Satan. Admitting doubt is a weakness. We should get away from doubt. Um, another end of the spectrum would be doubt is actually a positive word. It's um, for various reasons. So just with that set up, share with us your feelings about the word doubt. Yeah, um, to me, doubt is the exhale portion of my fail of my faith, where revelation is the inhale portion of my faith. And let me explain what I mean by that. Where we we breathe in, we breathe out, right? We take in nutrients, we use those nutrients, and then we exhale what isn't giving us nutrients. And then we breathe in again, and there's this continual cycle. And I think faith without doubt is like trying to inhale and never exhale. And doubt without faith is like trying to exhale and never inhale um, for our spirits, right? We need to fill these spiritual lungs with, with continuous nurturance and nurture. And, um, and so another way to talk about it is, Doubt is a tool, I, I believe, and I'll explain examples in the scriptures. Doubt is a tool can lead to revelation, but doubt is an ideology can lead us away from God. Um, and so throughout the scriptures, just briefly, we have in the Old Testament, right, we have Jacob wrestling with the angel. That was, that was him really wrestling with his inheritance, his faith, his tradition. Um, we have Lehi doubting his people. That was part of looking around and, and doubting, wait a minute, what's going on here? And, and feeling this call from God. A lot of prophets are coming from a place of doubt, of doubt of, wait, society isn't right here. That's an act of doubt. Um, and we even have tender moments with, with Jesus. Him, I don't, we often don't talk about it as doubt, and I don't know if we necessarily have to, but one way to think about is uh, you know, doubting the cost of the atonement, right? Almost recoiling at, whoa, this is this is serious, and you know, this this sense of abandonment he felt on the cross, I think, are powerful examples of how Jesus can empathize with us in our moments of doubt as well. We have the Apostle Thomas doubting. We have the Apostle Paul doubting the Jewish sect at his time, right? And him later, his kind of some funny, uh, rather testy exchanges, uh, doubting the requirement of Jew, uh, Jewish law for Gentile converts, right? Yeah. Um, Joseph Smith, he doubted the religious narratives of his day, right? Um, and, you know, doubt led societal doubt towards a lot of the prevailing theologies of the day that justified slavery. I would say that doubt was a positive thing. And Spencer W. Kimball doubting certain racial narratives and things, uh, his and theologies at his time. So those are just kind of cherry picked. But I think uh, there's a common thread there that doubt. It's we we, we shouldn't pathologize it. Um, it's really part of the dynamic of faith, but it isn't the goal. We shouldn't go around only ever doubting. I think that will lead us away from God. But we we need to go back to 
realizing it's part of the process of learning. And if, if we want to be open to revelation, we're going to have to doubt sometimes. We're going to have to doubt what we think we know sometimes. Um, and so for me, it's, it's, it's more of a natural thing. It's just part of this cycle of I want to learn. And sometimes that learning requires unlearning. And that unlearning requires coming back and thinking critically about things. Yeah, I like that. I love where you talk about the goal of doubt. And if the goal is to stay in doubt, that's different than if the goal is to seek more understanding and more revelation and, and be willing to unlearn things and learn new things. And the examples you gave, I, I do get nervous sometimes where the word doubt is universally kind of sort of criminalized. And, and I love the way you've uncriminalized it in these examples. And I think that's helpful. Um, talk about the body of Christ and how it relies on diversity. And, and maybe yeah. some thoughts from Elder Uchtdorf for your thoughts. Yeah, there's a wonderful quote from Elder Uchtdorf, and I'll read that in, in a little bit. But I, I think hopefully people are familiar with what we have in in First Corinthians, and and again in in uh, in, in Doctrine and Covenants, we have these these list of the the diversities of, of gifts of the Spirit, right? Um, and one thing to point out there is. When it's talking about these diversities of gifts, it's not necessarily these are the diversities of gifts that everyone must cultivate fully. It's saying in the body, there are going to be different gifts in different areas. Some, you know, to some there are this gift and to some there are this gift and to others it is this. And, and faith is listed in, um, in, in within one of those gifts. And I, I, I wonder sometimes what, what, how we might think of Doctrine and Covenants 88. Um, in, in 88, uh, verse 118, I wrote it down here because I wanted to quote it if we got to it. Um, it says, as all have not faith, seek ye diligently to teach one another words of wisdom and seek out the best books of wisdom, seek learning and by study and by faith. That phrase, as all, as all have not faith, is not used in a way that says, those who don't have faith need to get out. Right? It's saying within this body, within this church, there will be some who don't have faith. And it, instead of pathologizing it, it says, so teach one another, seek wisdom and seek learning and study. Um, and so I'm eager to try to move away from, from some of the pathologizing of, of will you Will you define of, that word? Doubt. For, will you define pathologizing for our listeners? Yeah, pathologizing just means to see as a, a negative or harmful thing. Uh, and, 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 and what I'm meaning in this case is not that it can't be, I think that, as I mentioned before, can be negative, but I think it doesn't have to be negative. And I think if we can redeem it as part of that tradition of we need to learn and eternal progress is going to involve rechecking. And so it's a little bit of a diversion away from the you know, body of Christ, but I think it comes up in there as well as people who struggle with faith in different ways are, can, and I think should be part of the gospel, the, the body of Christ. And we need them. We need them there with us. Um, and so this, this quote from Elder Uchtdorf, um, this is from his conference talk for titles. Um, and it's from April, 2013. Uh, it was at the priesthood session. Um, he, and I'll just read it because I, I don't want to paraphrase these lays it out so perfectly here, it says, while the atonement is meant to keep, to help us all become more like Christ, it is not meant to make us all the same. Sometimes we confuse differences in personality with sin. We can even make the mistake of thinking that because someone is different from us, 
it must mean that they are not pleasing to God. This line of thinking leads some to believe that the church wants to create every member from a single mold, that each one should look, feel, think, and behave like every other. This would contradict the genius of God, who created every man different from his brother, every son from his father. And I would add every sister from her mother and, and so forth. But he's speaking to a priesthood audience here. Um, even identical twins, he goes on, even identical twins are not identical in their personalities and spiritual identities. And then finishing up, he says, um, this also contradicts the intent and purpose of the church of Jesus Christ, which acknowledges and protects the moral agency with all its far-reaching consequences of each and every one of God's children as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are united in testimony of the restored gospel and our commitment to keep God's commandments, but we are diverse in our cultural, social, political preferences. The church thrives when we take advantage of this diversity and encourage one another to develop and use our talents and lift up our fellow disciples. So I just love that is a, a great example of the body of Christ. We need that diversity. Um, and if we try to squelch that diversity in ways, in, in certain ways, what we end up doing is harming that body of Christ. Yeah, you've really touched my heart with what you've just said. Um, that's just, to me, um, pretty profound stuff, and I'm grateful for Lerupdorf, who has the ability to put all that into words. Um, a couple questions come to mind. I, I know we're both trying to be LGBTQ allies. How does that, and when you think of your role as an ally, how does that fit into that mission? Yeah, so I, I think this is an area where um, we can really turn to the example of Jesus Christ. How did he reach out to those who were marginalized in, in his time? Um, I also think that this is an area where we are still learning. Um, there are a whole host of biological facts just from earnest, honest, independent study of God's creation that, you know, different biologists and things have had that are teaching us a whole host of things about how our heavenly parents have created their children. And I also think there are, there's ongoing ideas of how we understand this as a church and in our doctrine and our policies and so forth. And so, um, and, and I, I mentioned that because I, I, I look at the principles of, of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and I say, well, how can I minister regardless of where we are on different things or what doubts and, you know, whatever people might struggle with and, and genuinely struggle with, um, can I be a disciple in this context and can I reach out and can I minister? And so often we want to say, well, we want, we need, the, we need to get the revelation for, for them on this, that, or the other thing. And, and, and I almost wonder sometimes, this is just my, my personal opinion, but I often wonder sometimes whether or not God, uh, our heavenly parents are already revealing their will on this, but they're wisely revealing it through our LGBT siblings. Because it puts us in a position, very Christ-like, or it can put us in a very Christ-like position where we have to lay down power in order to listen and minister. And we have to put on those listening ears and those ministering hands in order to join and understand 
because they're living this experience. And as, as a an individual, I'm a you know a, a, a straight heterosexual man. There are going to be experiences and things that I'm just not going to understand on my own, and so I have to listen if I want to try to understand how God's children. Our, our, his LGBTQ children are, are living and experiencing the way God created them. So I'm apt to try to listen. Um, and I'm not a perfect listener. <laughs> I don't think any of us are. Um, but I think we can do things to listen. So I've worked with uh, some state leadership, uh, another lovely family in our, our ward. And my wife and I have supported creating a uh, LGBT FHE with, and, and doing that with our, our stake uh, presidency support and and that's been a, a great experience so far. We only had a couple meetings, but we're eager to try to create this space. I think we have a lot more latitude to create spaces of just focused on ministering. Um, it's not an, a, a place where we're going to go and speculate about doctrine and policy and things like that, but it is a place where we want to try to minister. Um, and so I think that's an important part where we can be part of that, that dynamic, living, growing, bleeding, feeling body of Christ. Um. That's really powerful stuff. I hope our listeners heard that. It's some of the best wording ever used on this podcast to transition from that doctrine to how it applies to our LGBTQ members and the importance of listening. Um, talk with our listeners about, so if, if a local bishop or a local Relief Society president or a stake leader is listening and wants to do something about and call it LGBTQ FHE, I know there's a couple stakes doing that in the church. And I think they've had area authority approval. Just give us kind of the ground rules. What are the, the lines in the sand where you're saying we, this is, this is kind of the focus. Are you, and are you meeting in church and are you announcing this in church? Are you meeting in people's homes? So, yeah. So, I mean, we have been so blessed with our, our wonderful state president who's been so supportive, um, his heart has been so tender on this, which has been just a, a wonderful blessing. Um, but he has um, been uh, right now we meet in a, a member's home and it's hosted there partly because for some of our LGBTQ uh, siblings, church can be a painful place. Um, and we wanted to try to create a, a neutral ground um, but our state president has also given us uh, support to say, well, if we grow, we get big enough or we need the space, we're welcome to meet in, in the church building. Uh, and so we meet once a month on a Sunday. But, you know, to some of the, the ground rules I mentioned, you know, we want, we want, it, we want to work with our, our, our church. And, and that's a choice, right? There are also wonderful groups that, that work uh, in parallel, but outside too or orthogonally too. And, uh, you know, there's a whole variety of ways. Um, but there are trade-offs if you're not working with the church. There's, you know, for instance, we were able to announce this, and, and it's in the, the ward uh, bulletin that is hand, handed out and posted on their Facebook group, and and we can uh, talk to our, our state presidency, and our wonderful state president has brought up the need to minister to LGBT um, uh, brothers and sisters in in. Uh, you know, talks and things that he's given. And so that degree of, of working and, and sustaining one another has been great benefit. But for some of the, you know, the ground rules, um, you know, they, they did ask that we avoid getting into speculative, you know, 
what we think the doctrine should or shouldn't be, that's not really our, our place. And I, I honestly believe that's not my place either. Um, I am not the president of the church, nor, nor do I think I want to be. Um, I think we have sustained apostles and prophets today, and I do sustain them as that. Uh, and by sustain, I don't mean blindly assent to. I mean sustain as the way that the scriptures describe God sustaining us in all patience and faith and trust and hope and those sorts of things. So, uh, so there's that. And then also, and I really appreciated their wise counsel on this, uh, is to, to also realize that we need to minister to those in our congregations who may not have um, a, a positive view towards our LGBTQ siblings or who may come not uh, as informed about what some of the latest more pastoral teachings of the church on this issue, or even on the biology and things like that, that we're all learning and we need the, the love and support that we give to our LGBTQ siblings. We also need to give to those who are still learning and growing. Um, and so I really appreciated their, their counsel on that. Um, and it's been useful. Uh, I know I've needed that. I've, I've had to unlearn. Even I was born in, in 1980 and I've had to go back and Speaking of doubt, I've had to go back and doubt what I learned in high school biology <laughs> um, because God's blessed us with so much light and knowledge um, in that particular area that that ought to be carefully considered when we when we think about our LGBT sibling experience. Um, and so, yeah, we've been able to create this space. And, and my hope is that we can that leaders can feel that this is something that is that is needed. Um, our, the response has been great. Um, I think our first meeting, we had close to 50 people there and I sent out a survey and the survey responses were, were heart touching. Um, and is uh, it, are there, L, are there LGBTQ people coming and allies and just people, is it a mix of everything? Um, there is, uh, it, it's a, it is a majority of, uh, non LGBT members. And we acknowledge that that's part of what this group can do is help bridge and, and create a space where members can come and, and learn. And many express that, that they're there to learn and support. We also do have, um, uh, we've had a, a, a gay individual, um, a queer individual, um, a lesbian individual, and then also uh, a transgender individual who have come. Um, and shared their experiences. And so we're, I'm, I'm really eager to not make this a, a group for straight heterosexual people to talk about LGBTQ people. <laughs> that, 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 that's a danger. Um, but um, I, I also I want it to be a place where LGBT, uh, LGBT siblings can come and feel that they can share their experience, um, even their pain. And we've talked about that in the group, but how can we share uh, one another's pain and even anger in a way that that doesn't feed more anger, but that can help us get to a place where we mourn with each other and and uh, lift one another up? So that's the goals, I would say. Of that. Yeah, I, I love the do. goals and the ground rules, and I love the support from the stake. And I I just I use the word scalable when I think of what you're doing there, and I think of a lot of local leaders that want to do something in this space. And often it shifts when they recognize they have a priesthood responsibility to a member of their ward or stake that's LGBTQ. And that certainly changed for me. I quit looking at this group as an outside group that posed a universal threat to me or our church. And there's certainly some of that, but there's some of that from straight people. And I 
and I recognize that there's LGBTQ people that I have priesthood responsibility for that may be closeted and are listening to everything I do or say. And so I think more and more men and women are um, recognizing that and feeling prompted to minister in some way. But at this point, there's just not a lot of standardized programs to do that. So I'm really cur- really excited about what you and the Long Beach East Stake is doing. And, and perhaps more and more will... Um, sort of adopt the same rules, the same template, and say we can do that, and and find more success. Um, I want to. I feel impressed to ask you a question. I think at times I know some of my listeners are kind of barely hanging on to the church, Caleb, um, and they listen partly because we're talking about difficult things, and they need to hear how others are processing difficult things that kind of know all the same complicated issues they do and find a way to stay. So um, if just, if you were to give some counsel, advice, thoughts to any listeners that, that actually want to find a, a way to authentically stay many that, as you and I both know, we just, we sometimes assume they want to find a way to leave, but I've recognized a lot and maybe most actually find a want to fa- a way to stay what advice would you give to that group that's just kind of barely hanging on? Yeah. So for me, and I can really only speak towards my own experience. Um, I would say some things that I sometimes share is, um, is to take it slow. <laughs> um, one tendency, and I felt this for is, when you go back and re-examine, wait, what do I believe and why do I believe it and things like that, you almost want to start running as fast as you possibly can. And it feels like I'm, I'm pulling this thread and there's no end and, 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 and it almost becomes obsessive. And so I think take it slow, be patient. This gets back to love yourself, love my neighbor as thyself. We want to be patient with our neighbors. Well, maybe we ought to be patient with ourselves too. Um, and it's also, it's okay that you don't have to be at peace with everything. I think this goes back to what you might've been you know, alluding to a little bit with God is God is the ideal of God. Isn't this stoic removed individual. And I sometimes frame it as the opposite of love isn't necessarily hate, but the opposite of love is also apathy. Right. And it's okay to care and caring sometimes hurts. Um, and so um, I think also taking breaks, I, I, I don't, I don't know if constantly reading your scriptures and church history is a good thing. I don't mean take a break and don't read your scriptures ever. I mean, pick up another book, pick up some fiction and read some fiction and, and get a, a palate cleanser. We're supposed to seek out the best books and the best books aren't just books about religion. They're also wonderful works of, of, you know, great literature. And, you know, if you like Shakespeare, read Shakespeare. And, and sometimes when you go and read those things, you can come back to the gospel with fresh eyes and go, wow, I'm looking at this in new ways. Um, I think sometimes we need to learn to sit with the silence that God speaks with. And I know that's not a necessarily comforting statement, but um, maybe an example. There are great psalms of lament in the scriptures. There's this great Jewish tradition of lamenting faith. And it's a beautiful thing that we, we kind of gloss over sometimes, but I think the Jewish uh, tradition has had to grapple with this in 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 ways that we might not have necessarily grappled with it. And so there's a great spiritual tradition of sitting with God in silence, um, almost in a meditative way. 
And then another thing I might mention is contextualize. Um, this has been important because, and I've had this experience even going out and in, in, in ecumenical settings where I've, I've been at, for instance, a Jewish, um, excuse me, a, um, a, uh, um, a mosque, not a Jewish mosque, a, uh, you know, Islamic mosque and, um, and talking with, um, local Islamic leaders and them communicating, we don't know how to connect to these youth and, you know, and our, you know, women are asking what's their place in this faith and they're grappling with the same issues. And so oftentimes when we have such a narrow view of, of faith, we, we keep all the problems that we might see on just our faith and it, it, to contextualize, study other faith traditions and realize, oh, people are grap- other people are grappling with this too. This isn't purely just our church. This is, this is the, the challenge of our age and we're in this challenge together with others. And as we've been talking, also focus on Jesus. Um, again, I mentioned Christology; it's a big word, but not because our beliefs in Jesus—I don't believe they're perfect. Right? I don't believe there's any perfect revelation. I think revelation is an ongoing process, and so it's okay to re-examine those things and say, "How how can I engage with my beliefs and, and things in Christ in new ways that inspire me to follow Him?" Um, I think that's an enduring principle that we can keep revisiting. Um, and then maybe just a couple more, be patient with yourself, but also be patient with others. <laughs> Remember how you used to think and put yourself in other shoes and, and ask, how would you want to be treated in those shoes? I think that's a general Christian principle as well. For myself, writing has been a tremendous help. Um, I am a fastidious uh, writer, not like writing short stories or anything, but when I have a thought or ponder about something in the gospel, I write it down. I run across a quote, I write it down. I run across something that's troubling to me, I write it down. And I come back and revisit it, and I write, and I think, and I write, and I cross, you know, and I've built up these journals that I think my online journal there on this, where just these little snippets of thoughts is uh, almost 2,000 entries long. And it's a tremendous resource for me. I've done this over almost a decade. It's a tremendous resource for me to look back and see my progress and see where I've understood things and rethought things. And, and I can also see the hand of God there for God guiding me in certain areas um, and be there for other people who needed me in that time and place. Um, and then finally, I, might, I, I would say just focus on love. It's such a fundamental principle. It's, it's, it's easier said than done, <laughs> but I think that is the challenge that, uh, that Christ gives us, is to love, learn how to respond to tragic events, tragic shocks to your system, to your faith, in a way that's love and, and, and focused on love towards God, towards yourself, and, and towards others. So those are some, some tips and, and things that I share sometimes, and I don't think that's universal. I, I think this has just been something that's helpful for me um, as I've gone back and rethought my faith and rethought how can I engage with it in new ways it's really helpful I you know I've listened to a lot of people answer that question Caleb and that's as fine answers I've ever heard it's a very thoughtful practical um, answer that if I'm sitting on the other end of this podcast kind of barely hanging on that gives me some hope and some tools and some patience with myself and there's beauty in everything you said it's not like this is like having an, a leg amputated without anesthetics so that you can somehow authentically believe. 
I think the process you outlined is really cool. And there's a lot of growth that occurs through that. And it's part of mortality. And I, I would guess, you know, you would, you're really grateful that all this has happened to you and where you are now is a really wonderful place, but it's taken work, but there's been joy in the journey and some pain. What would you say? Yeah. Just in, I want to do two things. I want to ask you one last question. I want to just give you, you know, anything else you want to share with our listeners, but um, what are sort of the core rest doctrines of the restoration that you feel that are unique to our church that, um, really are part of your testimony. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I've thought about that off and on is because when you go through and rethink your faith and things like that, you eventually uh, need to address that question of, well, why this faith, right? If right. I can anchor onto, onto Christ and I believe other Christian faiths anchor onto Christ in, in beautiful, lovely ways. So why don't just go over there versus here? And, and I also think it's important to be honest that faith at root is a choice. I think sometimes we want to make faith, this goes back to this, we make faith in it, this assent to belief. Um, sometimes we can almost treat our faith as, as like an idol where we just need to get everyone on board. And if they accept A, B, and C, then that's the end and they'll agree with us on this. And I think faith is more complicated than that. It's a choice. And so when I go back and think, okay, what, what is it about um, this, this faith that, that uniquely inspires me. So some examples are, um, for instance, I love the, um, the ideas of salvation that, that, that we have in the Book of Mormon, that we have revealed from Joseph Smith, where it gives us this non-black and white dimension. Like in Alma, it makes, Alma 41, it makes the judgment of buried natural consequence that's tailored to each life rather than this heaven hell bucketized sort of approach. Um, I also like the, uh, the non priestly prophet Samuel, right. Um, I, I, and I, and I, this is just my own opinion, but, um, there's no mention of his sort of priesthood authority, uh, in the book of Mormon. He just comes almost out of nowhere. And, and it's interesting is because he, what is one of the things Christ says when Jesus comes and visits the Nephites? He says, remember the Samuel guy, this, this Lamanite that you didn't like? Why didn't you include his voice in the record, right? And so he kind of calls the Nephites um, sort of uh, exclusion of that prophetic voice that came from outside. And so that's an interesting lesson that we have in, in the Book of Mormon. Um, I also love the stories of redemption, right? Some of the prophets in the Book of Mormon were once called the very vilest of sinners, and that redemption. Um, and outside of the Book of Mormon, I really enjoy the focus of covenants in, 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 in our faith. And what I mean by that is that it's rather than this, our faith being defined as this rigid creed, or we just need to assent to the A, B, and C, and D, you know, these five things, once we say that, then it's all buttoned up and taken care of. It's, it's, it's this incredibly power. The covenants have this incredible power, power to transcend these ideological divides that I can live the gospel covenant. And like what we, when Elder Uchtdorf was teaching, and I can be very different from my neighbor politically, personality wise, temperament, you know, and in a varied way that another person also living that covenant can. And so covenants really teach us not how to think, not what to think, but how to live, if that makes sense. Um, and then 
a so I, I serve on the, uh, the the board of the, the Mormon Transhumanist Association, uh, which is super. Uh, you know, transhumanism can get into uh, you know all sorts of cool technology that's changing the human condition and things like that. But one thing that I that I love uh, that, that ties me strongly towards this faith is the idea of a co-eternal relationship with God, and it's a co-eternal relationship. It frame reframes how we think about being children of, of our heavenly parents. It reframes what salvation might mean. It reframes what it means to follow Christ, because no longer are we necessarily this eternally subjugated thing to God. What God is doing is not seeking to build codependent children. God is seeking to build peers. And he means that in a radical way, meaning that everything that God has, has God is willing to give us as we go through this process of following God and, and, and growing and, and things like that. And I think that's an incredible truth that was revealed in the restoration. It's, it's very powerful for me. And it finds a lot of my, my expression in that, that more transhumanist association. So uh, where we talk about, well, what does it mean to become like God and, and how is technology? You know, we're doing all we're, we're doing things like reviving the dead. We just call it, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, shocking the person's heart back to beating, right? And in ancient times, that would wow. be seen as miraculous, right? And we're giving we're giving the deaf ears to hear with cochlear implants and things like that. So that that helps itch both my my love for technology, but also in a way that is deeply theological and spiritual for me. But that makes sense. So that's that just a few of the highlights of why I love our faith in general. And this was unscripted listeners, and I love Caleb's answer to that. And that is often a fundamental part of my testimony is that, you know, the uniqueness of the restoration and uniqueness often defined by the doctrines that restored that are very meaningful to me um, as a member of the church. Any final comments you'd like to share with our listeners, Caleb, before we sign off? Sure. Um Maybe I'll, I'll talk a little bit. I mentioned the word Christology, and this could be a whole other sidebar, so I won't go deep into it. But um, it's important just to understand that um, there are, are there have been different ways to think about Jesus Christ, not just today, but all the, going all the way back towards the very beginning of the disciples of, of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul understood things different than Peter in a lot of ways, and and John and, and so forth. And so I think we ought to see this diversity of belief, not as a liability, but really as an asset. Getting back to, uh, you know, El Utof was talking about, this diversity is a strength. It's what makes the body of Christ strong. Um, and you can point at each one of the things and, and you know, the nativity, the crucifixion, the, uh, the, 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 the kind of the threefold uh, offices of prophet, priest, and king, and the way that um, you know, uh, the, the Lamb of God and, and and all those different things. And you can look at those from different angles. And I think that's also what Jesus was doing in his parables. He didn't say the kingdom of God is like this one thing. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like this, and it's like this other thing, and it's like this other thing, and this other thing. And I think what he's doing is he's giving us different lenses to come to the gospel. And not every lens is going to make sense for everyone. I, I don't think it necessarily has to. But can you find a lens it works. And and for those that I think that are struggling, really grappling with, well, I'm grappling with the historical Jesus and, you know, 
Christians believe this and or is that a you know later thing that they developed and it can be very disorienting and so I've um, I've talked about uh, almost like a grounding where at one point in my my faith transition where I'm reexamining things I had to think of my faith in terms of at least and I'll just list those out briefly because these provide kind of a, a grounding for me where I can find faith and trust and hope and a desire to live the gospel, even at these at least. But I won't stop there. So don't, don't think that this is what I necessarily believe, but it's a, a floor off of which I build. And it's things like God is at least a human projection of our best aspirations. And Satan is at least a human projection of our worst flaws. And the atonement is at least the power within us to heal and respond to the pain and suffering to, and towards reconciliation. And Jesus is at least a person who tapped into the power of the atonement and God to face death and sin in, in powerful ways. And salvation is at least our best effort to attain Godhood and a Christ-like life. So that's kind of a grounding where even with all these things stripped away, I can stand firmly on that ground and say, this is a powerful gospel message that gives me hope in life. But then on top of that, I go, okay, well, what are my hopes and my beliefs? So I have faith that heavenly parents exist and that there are loving creators. And I believe that in the existence of moral freedom, they'll give others the agency to reject that. And, and I think it's okay to call that Satan. I avoid using Satan in kind of, as a kind of a boogeyman or labeling others as say, Satan, except extreme cases of like sadism, abuse and predatory violence and things like that. Um, but I also trust that the atonement is more than just a self-realization and that in it, we form a real connection and reconciliation with God. And I have faith that Jesus was and is a manifestation of God's love and empathy and charity. And in more than just metaphorical ways, I, I really believe that. And, and I trust that salvation is physical and, and that with atonement, you can use the atonement in our tools and technologies in our lives or societies and our church and our families, and we can overcome death and sin. That's a third, that's our, that's our potential with God. And so, so that's one thing that's been helpful for me is that framing my beliefs as something I'm standing on this very almost neutral statements about God, but that's still motivating statements. And then saying, how am I choosing faith on top of that? Because there are choices and other people will choose differently and that's okay. Some people will choose kind of a higher Christology or a higher way of understanding things, and they'll, they'll, you know, they'll have more things to say, and that that's fine too. Um, but my hope is that if we're, if we're building a body of Christ, then let's make room for people that may be just on that ground and saying it's just a powerful story for me. But I'm here; the story is bringing me here, and I want to live this. But also provide room for people that you know, are soaring up in these heights of, of faith and things like that, almost like the beginning of the Gospel of John. Um, I'm less interested in trying to get everyone to think the same way on that and more, can we find trust and hope in this Gospel message? It's message of love, it's message of faith and hope and repentance and coming together in the covenant of baptism and seeking to live by the Spirit and and let some of that diversity come. And, and so that way, I hope we can we can open that up a bit more. And I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, I would say. I think some of the things the church has been doing around, you know, home-centered and church-supported, I think that's a deeply Christ-like um, uh, focus. Because it, 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 and 
what I mean by that is it releases power. And Christ was he was saving because he used power to lift up and he relinquished power in a way that then empowered others. And I think the church empowering families, I, I see that as a really Christ-like act, if that makes sense. So yeah, that's some of my final thoughts around, around things. Caleb, on behalf of all our listeners, thanks for joining us. I think we'll have you on the podcast again sometime. I, you know, I've done a lot of these, and you have just a really unique, wonderful voice and perspective that's helpful for, you know, I could almost be a generation older than you at 58. <laughs> that might be a bit of a stretch, but um, I love what you're teaching, what you're saying. It's, it is just kind of mamma to me, and but I particularly think the younger members of our church that are wired for a worldview that sort of starts with the most marginalized and asks, what's my faith doing for them and what can I do for them? That's certainly different than my age growing up. Um, and then your ability to tie the gospel of Jesus Christ and our church into that and give perspective and framework. So um, I think we all wish we, you were in your, we were in your Sunday school class. Um, we have all, I don't want to sell out any other Sunday school teachers, but you have some real gifts of teaching and insights and a really kind heart. And so thank you, Caleb Jones, for joining us on an episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. I'd like to give a shout out. I should do this more often to Tom Garbett. He's a real person who produces these podcasts. After we record them, he makes them go on the internet and all the podcast apps that I don't understand. So everybody pray for Tom's safety. Um, and that he can continue to do this um, service for us. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.